Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name's Tanner, and I'll be joined today by Taylor, as usual, and by another special guest. We've got Alexia from Titanic Talkline. How's it going, Alexia? It goes. It is actually not oppressively hot in Texas, which, you know, weird for once. How does it go for you? I'm doing just fine here in Wisconsin. It's almost uh, feeling like spring outside. It's sunny. The snow is all melting. Taylor, how are you doing? That's actually great. I'm like right in the middle here in Ohio, and it actually feels like spring. It's like 60 degrees. It's sunny. It's finally not raining. My yard looks awful. I need to cut it, but it's still mm-hmm. a swamp. So that'll happen when it happens. Yeah. I saw you were in Dave Chappelle's hometown the other day. Uh, yeah, we were in Yellow Springs yesterday. That was a fun time. Uh, ate at a cool little German place. Went to some bookshops, record stores, that kind of thing. Found a couple Gordon Lightfoot albums. So what kind of what kind of beer did you drink last night? Uh oh no! Last night we went and watched one of our friends do some uh, uh, improv comedy, and after that we had a beer with her. And I was bold and tried a uh, Cincinnati Chili Skyline flavored beer. Ew. It was awful. It was it was disgusting. <laughs> and I love Skyline. I, I love Skyline chili, but this beer, it just tasted like salt and cinnamon. Ew. <laughs> even the idea, even the idea of having a beer with Skyline sounds repulsive just because of how filling both of those things are. It wasn't the best decision I made. Let's see other housekeeping stuff. We don't have any patrons. Uh, we don't have any new patrons to thank this week. We could start doing like a goodbye patron sequence after <laughs> our April Fool's episode. Just a wall of shame. <laughs> We've lost several of them. Partially thanks to you, Alexia. You know what? Any any questions or comments can be diverted to the hosts of the show, and I will not be taking questions at this time. Thank you. <laughs> if you don't listen to Titanic Talk Line, first of all, you should. Uh, and secondly, if you recognize Alexia's voice, she was the voice of Lynn LaPlante Alloway, our dumped upon violinist uh, <laughs> from the Chicago's Little Lady episode. So we're very happy to have Alexia here on the show today um, to talk about a topic kind of related to the Titanic. But before we get into that, we normally do our media check in, talk about what have we been reading or listening to or writing or playing? Um, What have we been doing with our time? What about you, Alexia? So I, for the first time in my 33 years of age, am playing WoW, World of Warcraft. Um, I've never done that before. And that, I guess, is my newest thing that I've been doing. Because the other things I've been doing, I've been re-watching and um, re-reading things. Um, I am watching Ted Lasso. That's the Mm. last season's coming out right now. I really love that show. And my boyfriend and I, weirdly enough, just as something to watch in the background, but then somewhat got invested in watching season three of Love is Blind, because I hate waiting for full seasons to air. And Netflix is trying to like drop episodes and increments Mm -hmm. for a reality TV show. And I think that is just ridiculous. So I was like, I'm going back a season. I'm going to watch that. (laughs) So we watched that instead. So that is what I have been doing uh, of video game and reality TV. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Taylor, what have you been up to besides your beer excursion? Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I started watching Broad City. Really been enjoying that. I love that kind of stuff. I, it's just a series I hadn't caught yet. But uh, me and Darcy have been watching that. Quite, but she's already seen it multiple times and really likes it. So it's it's fun. It's my kind of humor. Have you gotten to the Blake Griffin episode yet? 
No, I'm only like four or five episodes. I in. think that's probably my favorite episode. Um, other than that, I'm still slugging away at crime and punishment about halfway through that. It's good. It's enjoyable. I just, uh, yeah, I have to be like motivated to read. And then there's just some days I'm like, I can't do this today. Same. So you finished with the crime and you're into the punishment now. We finished with the crime and we're doing a whole lot of psychological like punishment right now. The crime is finished on like page 10, I guess. Yeah, it happens pretty quick, but it's good. I'm enjoying it and just trying to read more. Uh, but yeah, just got to be in the mood to read. It's hard to sit down. I have, it has to be the only thing going on. If I have the TV on or something, like I can't sit there and do it. So when I get home from work at night, usually I'll like spend like 45 minutes and knock out a chapter. That's about it, though, really. What about you? Uh, my biggest thing recently, I finished that John Scalzi book I was reading. It was okay. Uh, it was Bandcamp Friday this past Friday, so that's nice. always fun. It's always a good day to sort of pounce on stuff you've been kind of waiting on. Uh, for anyone not familiar with Bandcamp Friday, that's a day uh, they do them kind of roughly once a month where Bandcamp waives their revenue sharing. And so more of the money goes directly to the artist, which is always cool. Um, so it's a good time to kind of jump on something you've been waiting on. You might wait until Bandcamp Friday and uh, a little bit more of your money goes to the artist. Nice. The next one of those is on May 5th for anyone uh, interested. Uh, also, Bandcamp employees are unionizing uh, and their union Bandcamp United has our full support. Um, cool. So, yeah, totally. go, go spend some money on Bandcamp. They have explicitly made calls against a boycott. So go spend some money on your smaller or less known artists. Yeah, I think that's that's what I got up to. So I guess this is going to lead us into the main sequence of our episode. We Woo. are going to talk about a vessel that uh, probably many of you are uh, somewhat familiar with. In is it Titanic the, in the maritime community? <laughs> we, we we do have Alexia here to 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 lend some <laughs> lend some of her uh, experience here, but it is not in fact the Titanic we're going to talk about. Today. Well, well, then I don't know why I'm here. So we can, I guess, we can say goodbye to Alexia and Taylor and I can. <laughs> Taylor and I can finally do an episode. I feel like Taylor and I haven't done an episode, like a regular episode, in like over a month. We've had oh, a bunch yeah. of guest episodes. This is the culminating guest in our long sequence of guest episodes. <laughs> well, um, hang around then. So for those of you who hate guest episodes, they're almost done. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but for the rest of you who've been enjoying our parade of wonderful guests, enjoy our last one here for a while. We're not even going to talk to other people after we're done with this. <laughs> it's going to be that good. Let alone another guest episode. <laughs> so let's talk about the SS Atlantic. SS Atlantic was a product of Belfast's Harland and Wolf shipyard. <laughs> like so many other uh, famous vessels that we discussed. We need like the rapper mm-hmm. Airhorn for when we mention them. I feel like they come up so frequently. I can add that in. I can add that in for sure. And Atlantic was built for the famed White Star Line. White Star Line had her origins in the 1840s with the partnership of Henry Wilson and John Pilkington. This iteration of White Star enjoyed a little bit of success offering routes to Australia through the 1860s. But after defaulting on some loans, they were forced into liquidation in 1869. At which point the company name and house flag were acquired by Thomas Henry Ismay. I know that name. A thousand pounds he bought that for. So quite a bargain, I would say. Yes, the uh, Titanic people obviously are uh, ears perking up at the name Ismay. 
talk a little bit about that family in this episode. So Ismay wanted to shift the company's focus to the North Atlantic uh, and to become the dominant company occupying that market. It's kind of interesting because that's, at least for me, um, that's kind of what I associate White Star Line with is right. transatlantic passenger routes, mm-hmm. um, both them and Cunard. Mm-hmm. And so this was kind of cool looking a little bit earlier in the history to see um, what were some of those competing areas of focus. Um, uh, so in September of 1869, the company was formally established as the Oceanic Steam Navigation Company. I guess I did not know that that was White Star's official name. Yep. Yeah, I did not know that either. That was a secret to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things when you look back in these histories of businesses, especially that kind of go through a lot of ownership changes in their time, where... The emerging name is not always the name of origin, and especially when you go and look at some of these things like Oceanic Steam Navigation Company. That just sounds mm-hmm. awful when you say it out loud. And then, you know, there was also a shift in focus and there was a shift in the way that things were done over the course of decades and then even periods of five to 10 years that necessitated things like name changes to become more consumer friendly. But at the time that this was starting, they weren't really thinking about how does this sound to the average person's <laughs> ear and things of that nature. So things were often named extremely literally because it helped identify them as a merchant. It wasn't helpful to walk down the street and be like Peggy's business and be like, well, I don't know what Peggy does. <laughs> it was helpful to be just like Peggy's cobbler. Peggy's a cobbler. The business nature is very much understood instead of trying to make some guesses. And then also it's like even with these name changes, it's like, of course, people are just going to probably continue calling it the name right. that they know it's like sports fans in stadiums. I, I still call the Brewers home stadium Miller park. And I, I probably always will. It will never be American family insurance field. That sounds really <laughs> dumb. I didn't even know what the actual name was at this point. Me neither. So anyway, so we, so we've got, we've got white star, uh, two of the earliest shareholders in this new white star line were Edward J. Harland and Gustav Wolf. So, <laughs> We could have a small air horn for each of them there. <laughs> so Atlantic was launched in November 1870 as a member of White Star's Olympic class <laughs> of ocean liners. Um, so these ships are designed for that newly emphasized North Atlantic uh, service between Liverpool and New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had three sisters, Oceanic, Republic, and Baltic. So listeners, longtime listeners of this show who have a insanely good memory. If you think back to our whaleback episode on the city of Everett, this is not the same Republic that collided with the SS Florida and set off that first use of the uh, Marconi signal for evacuation. Uh, this is, that's the later RMS Republic that was built in 1903. So the first Republic. Yes. This is like France. We have like multiple, multiple <laughs> named Republics here. Did did you say that that was the Olympic class or the Oceanic class in 1870? Uh, I don't know what I actually said. I think I wrote Olympic. You did write Olympic. It's Oceanic though, right? It is. The Oceanic class, you know, obviously the um, is this series of four ships, the Oceanic Republic, Baltic, and Atlantic. The Olympic class ships were the sister ships that emer- that came out in 1911. That was Olympic, Titanic, oh. and Britannic. Oh, that's why. That's yeah, where that yeah. came from. Easy to okay. confuse. Easy to confuse because before... As soon as I heard that. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I was just going to glide on past it, but it is easy to confuse because they're similarly named, Oceanic and Olympic, number one. And number two, they are the two most important 
best known fleets of the White Star Line. Easy to confuse and around similar-ish times. So It makes sense also that one of them is called the Oceanic, and it would be the name <laughs> of the class, like normally happens. I, I just uh, know someone's going to be really angry in our Twitter mentions. Yeah! <laughs> it's me. <laughs> I'm just going to say this phrase again and then cut it where it goes. As a member of White Star's Oceanic class of ocean liners... So vessels in this class were long and slender with a length to beam ratio of about 10 to 1. Atlantic was about 420 feet long, 40 feet in beam with a depth of 31.4 feet. Their single four-cylinder engine and propeller, she had a top speed of 14 and a half knots and had a capacity of over 1,100 passengers. Most of those would have been in steerage. Uh, the first class accommodations were some of the nicest you would really find at the time. Uh, and in addition to her steam power, she was equipped with four masts for auxiliary sailing power. This is like my favorite time of like shipbuilding where you've got, you know, steam engines, but they're not reliable enough that you still have to have the sails. And it looks like something sort of out of like uh, the wild, wild west or something like mm -hmm. that. Like there's almost kind of a steampunk quality to it. And it's it's fun. I like it. It's almost like the literal definition of steampunk when you consider that it's the <laughs> blending of modern steam-powered elements uh -huh. with that old Victorian era. It's almost literally that. Yeah. These sail ships, sail ships? I almost said sailboats. But these <laughs> sail ships were, you know, the standard at the time. And then literally adding in steam-powered elements. I think that, that you could make a, an argument that this is the mother of original steampunk. Absolutely. Something like the SS Atlantic. You heard it here. Um, for me, I, I hadn't really read about the Atlantic mm -hmm. before this, but I'd seen that picture with her four masts. I don't even know that I knew she was a steamship, that she right. was like the SS Atlantic, because I just associate, associated her with her uh, her masts. She's double dipping here. As I've just pointed out, SS could also stand for sail ship. So when That's I was true. reading it through, I really didn't. I mean, I'm being somewhat like jokey here, but I didn't think that too far through the first time I read about it either. Mm -hmm. Especially when you look at the picture without looking twice at it, it's mm -hmm. really easy to miss the funnel because it's just these beautiful, you know, engulfing masts that you see in that illustration. So unless you're searching for the steam power, it's a little difficult to find just from the illustration. Searching for steam sounds like it would be like the first title in like a journal article or something. And then it would have a subtitle explaining what it's actually about. Or a series of novels that I would read. <laughs> Let's see. So with Atlantic, her maiden voyage began on June 8th, 1871, leaving Liverpool for New York under Captain Digby Murray. <laughs> That's a great name. Murray is fine, but uh, Digby just brings that name right to the oh, top. Digby. He was one of White Star's premier captains, uh, and at one point he would, uh, one point or another, he would serve as master of all the Oceanic class vessels, plus the slightly later uh, Celtic and Adriatic. Uh, one uh, more comment on Digby: uh, It really sounds like if you had a pair of corgis, you could name them like Digby and Murray. It'd be yeah. perfect. Hey, for uh, one of our listeners, there you go. If you've got some corgis sitting around, breed dog yeah. names right here, or a pair of twins that are coming. That's right. <laughs> So her return trip there was uh, started on the 1st of July, 1871. Overall, Atlantic had a pretty quiet career for the most part. She had 18 successful transatlantic crossings. A very, very minor exception to this was in November 1871. Atlantic was sitting totally stationary in Liverpool Harbor, not doing anything wrong. Uh, when she was struck by the SS Alexandria, 
causing about 300 pounds worth of damage to the Atlantic. And really, the the next thing of note in her career is the major focus of why she is on this episode today. Here we go. So getting into the incident portion. Wait, does everyone have their life belts on? <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I forgot mine. Well, it's all right. Go ahead anyway. I don't think anything's going to happen. It seems fine. This is a fancy new ship. and, and Yeah. God himself couldn't sink this ship. Let's Unsinkable. Unsinkable. And probably the crew knows where they're going. <laughs> There's a reason that they're officers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they're totally, totally uh, in the authority to do things, just like I am totally in the authority to have my own show. <laughs> Does that authority derive from the fact that you're the cousin of someone else who, who also has a podcast? Because... We're going to we'll, we'll talk about that portion of the crew here uh, shortly. All right. I'll keep my nepotism to myself for the time being. Um, we, there were Nepo babies in 1873. Who knew? Ooh, I think, I think, I think that's have, like the world's oldest profession. I was going to say, I think there have been Nepo babies since like currency. Abraham and his family. The UK is liter- was literally ruled by Nepo babies at this point, right? What is Isaac but a Nepo baby? All right, I'll spare your son, I guess. Ishmael actually had to do some work. Let's see, where are we? So on March 20th, 1873, uh, the Atlantic departed Liverpool for another voyage to New York with about 950 aboard, uh, about 835 passengers and 117 crew. She was captained by James Williams. One thing I noticed as I was writing these notes is I kept on having to double check the captain's name because all of these white star captains have the most generic names. They definitely do. It's like someone reached into the white man name generator mm-hmm. a thousand times. I'm like, I cannot. They're all named Edward James. Because I kept mixing Charles. him up with like, with like Edward Smith and then combining yep. some some uh, iteration of their names. There was a very small pool of people probably to ever pick from to get to that point, I imagine. <laughs> they all came from the same place. Well, and then you've got Digby Murray, who has a really cool Name. There's one book of approved name for rich peoples, and they have one page of like eccentric names that they mm-hmm. sometimes let people leaf through. D- Digby's that family name that just keeps getting passed down to the firstborn. For people um, like us to laugh at a hundred years later. <laughs> yes. Um, so, due to concerns about her supply of coal and not wanting to rely on her sails in these wind conditions, Williams decided to put the ship into Halifax, Nova Scotia, rather than pressing on directly to New York. And I didn't really write that much about it in the notes because it seems somewhat up in the air, the explanation for this. But sometimes this is written about as a miscalculation um, Mm -hmm. on how much coal she had. Some sources paint it as like an intentional thing of of saying that she had too little coal uh, based Mm -hmm. on, I don't know, the the engineer. I didn't really care that much, uh, so I didn't really read that much about it. I mean, I will have to say that if I'm captaining a ship and I don't think I have enough coal to make it to my destination, I certainly don't think I'm going to risk striking off into the, you know, into the big Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Right. But I'm also not known for great decisions. So what do I know? (laughs) Uh, So quoting an excerpt from Captain Williams' correspondence back to White Star. So this is stuff he was writing, of course, after the fact. Sailed from Liverpool March 20th. During the first part of the passage had favorable weather and easterly winds. On the 24th, 25th, and 26th, experienced heavy southwest and westerly gales, which brought the ship down to 118 miles a day. On the 31st of March, 
the engineer's report showed only 127 tons of coal on board. We were then 460 miles east of Sandy Hook, wind southwest, and high westerly swell and falling barometer, the ship steaming only 8 knots per hour. Considered the risk too great to push on, as we might find ourselves in the event of a gale short, out from any port of supply, and so decided to bear up for Halifax at 1 p.m. on the 31st. And the website SS Atlantic History points out that the captain's distances and times are kind of off here, since here he's going purely off of his own recollection when he's writing those statements and his letters afterwards. Also, this is a point where I I had to look back, and and I'm glad I did, because originally I had typed that as brought the ship down to 118 miles an hour. (laughs) Should be moving. This is the White Star speed that made them so famous. Yeah, Formula One needs to stop trying to figure out how to juice with gas engines and go back to whatever the hell White Star Line was using. (laughs) Roll coal. Uh, (laughs) Oh, it's just because you can't see anybody else. That's why you get the speed. So Halifax was a a normal stopover point for vessels on these transatlantic routes, uh, but it wasn't something that White Star ships really did. So with the exception of Quartermaster Robert Thomas... This left the Atlantic without any officers who were knowledgeable about the approaches to the harbor. And this is important. But, like, I do feel like there's a minimum expectation that, like, if you can captain a ship, you can, uh, you know, captain it wherever it needs to go. You would think so, especially because a large portion of these routes are transatlantic, which, Mm -hmm. you know, require a lot of very odd weather patterns and changes. Mm -hmm. So it does seem as though, hey... You're training to be a sea captain. Why don't we make sure you can captain all of the seas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would almost be like an airplane, like an airliner pilot, like not being able to <laughs> land at a certain airport. It's like, I get it that certain airports have quirks and weird things. But like, in general, I would think you'd be expected to land that thing wherever you are. I, c- I can't land at LAX. <laughs> There's too much smog. I don't know how to land in smog. I can only do clean cities. Well, yeah, like here, it's like maybe Halifax is like the double black diamond of, of <laughs> harbors to enter. Oh god, double black diamond. Double black diamond. Oh my gosh. I thought that one of my friends died on a ski trip because I know absolutely nothing about skiing and I don't go that often, but she is one of those double black diamond people. Mm-hmm. So my mother was very kindly leading me to whatever the beginner path was and my friend just disappeared off the side of a mountain and I thought she had <laughs> fallen. No, as it turns out that's the opening of a double black diamond right ra- slope just 180 degrees off the side of the mountain with no warning or preamble just by and it was terrifying (laughs) so as the atlantic closed in on halifax around midnight of march 31st captain williams had taken to his cabin to get some sleep uh, leaving the ship under the command of the 26 year old second mate henry ismay metcalf If you're wondering out there about the second officer having the name Ismay, yes, he is the cousin of White Star Executive Thomas Ismay. It doesn't seem like a good idea for the captain to go take a nap when they're going and leave to leave the 26-year-old in charge. I well, mean, like at least leave the 36-year-old in charge if you got one. This actually connects uh, quite a bit to the episode that I recorded last week with Jalen Salah. Uh, we talked about the Exxon Valdez, and this was another problem with the Exxon Valdez is that the captain and all of the other certified officers of the watch have left the bridge um, as they're navigating out of the port of Valdez. Like this is a very treacherous area. That isn't the time to do that. 
the sleep schedules, the rest schedules, the scheduling, this is not ideal uh, that this is when the captain's not on the bridge. And we've left it in the hands of our our Nepo baby here. There's another shipwreck where the captain was asleep when it happened. It was a White Star Line ship. Is this the Titanic? It is the Titanic. Okay. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, granted, it wasn't negligence. It was his shift to sleep. And in that case, right. the first officer was was on the bridge and paying attention and awake and doing stuff. So it's not like they left it in the hands of the, the steward, the third class dining saloon steward. But this, there does seem to be a unfortunate pattern of things. Un- uh, however, I will say in the Titanic case, everyone was completely qualified. So it wasn't like, oh, those children. I, Murdoch was like almost 40. Are you kidding me? Where are we at in society today? Come after me. I'm a man. I'm 40. I'm not a, I'm not a kid. According to Bob Chalk, uh, the author of SS Atlantic, White Star Line's first disaster at sea. Thomas Ismay had a cousin named Henry Metcalf, whom he slotted in ahead of more experienced officers as the second officer on the Atlantic. The third officer had much more experience on that particular ship at that particular time. Uh, Chalk continues to talk about the situation on the bridge that particular night. The captain gave these guys their final orders for the watch, which was set to keep a close lookout for a stationary light which would have been the Sombra lighthouse. A moving light would have been any other ship. So his point was, the minute you see the stationary light, call me. Back to Captain Williams' own account of these climactic moments. I then left the deck and went to the chart room, leaving orders about the lookouts and to let me know if they saw anything, and call me at 3 a.m., intending then to put the ship's head off the southward and await daylight. My first intimation of the catastrophe was the striking of the ship on Mars Island and remaining fast. The sea immediately swept away all the port boats. Something I wanted to throw in here, just because as I was reading about some of these White Star history things, um, this is referred to as White Star's first disaster. And I think if you wanted to split hairs, and if I know maritime people, they do. <laughs> People might argue that the, I believe it's pronounced the Taylor. It's spelled differently. I guess you could make the argument that that was a White Star disaster as it was being chartered by White Star at the time, but it was like before. I think that was in like the 1840 somethings. Um, mm-hmm. So before they had their own ships. Um, I saw that listed on the Wikipedia same, page when I was looking at it not, real quick. But not technically owned. I think I'm going to start using that spelling though for my name. I like it. Taylor. Yeah, it's very French. Early in the morning of April 1st, 1873, around 3.15, Atlantic struck a submerged rock near Lower Prospect, Nova Scotia. April Fool's. You're about to get dumped on. Get ready. No fooling here. No fun. Much like our podcast, no no fun, no fooling. Yes. (laughs) That's the White Star motto. Uh, Captain Williams' statements noted the location as Mars Head on Meager's Island, as it was the closest marked point on his chart, although the wreck Uh, is actually about a mile away uh, from Mars Head. Uh, So unknown to any of the officers on board, the Atlantic had drifted about a dozen miles off course to the west of Halifax Harbor. And, you know, this part of the coast is like relatively rocky, like maybe not the worst coastline we've looked at. You know, we've looked at the coasts of Chile and like northwestern Spain. Um, 
but still not a great place to be uh, sailing if you don't know where you are. And also, no soundings had been taken, uh, no masthead lookout had been posted, and speed had not been reduced. So again, all of this stuff with the captain not being on the bridge. Um, So kind of multiple layers of not best safety practices. Uh, So from the maritime executive here, describing the immediate aftermath of the Atlantic running aground. Atlantic was swamped within minutes, leaving her decks and rigging swept by waves. The struggle to leave the ship and make it to shore claimed the lives of many. Several crew members heroically swam through the heavy surf and freezing water to land rescue lines and seek help. At daylight, local fishermen also braved the high seas to look for survivors. Water temperatures were estimated around 30 degrees, and many of those who did manage to escape the lower decks ended up dying of hypothermia. Tale as old as time, none of the Atlantic's 10 lifeboats successfully reached shore, even those that were, be, uh, were able to be deployed successfully. Um, so in the accounts, you know, it talks about almost immediately a lot of the lifeboats being taken out of commission. Um, and then even after it's been on the rocks for a bit, the ship starts to keel over and that kind of takes the rest of them out. You see that happen with a lot of wrecks. It happened with the um, the Lusitania mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty um, famously. That one also sank in about, you know, 18 minutes. So part of it was just they didn't have time. But all of Titanic's lifeboats launched. But when you read survivor accounts, and especially from the officers, they testify that as the ship went down and, and started to list, it made that gap a lot more treacherous to try to get across. And eventually, I imagine if that continues to list, it just becomes absolutely untenable to launch them. Yeah, this is an interesting time with lifeboats where in Titanic, it really was best case scenario that the weather was calm. Mm -hmm. If there had been a nearby vessel, like those boats would have functioned exactly how they were supposed to, to get off of the sinking boat and onto another liner. But, you know, anytime you're on a shoal or in a storm or in the way of a German torpedo and things are happening quickly, like these boats are just not meant to do that. It is really interesting because they're also not meant to function the way that we know lifeboats to function now, Mm -hmm. which is as, you know, a method of keeping you in them safely until you can be rescued. Until about, you know, 50, 60 years ago, airline travel was not the primary method of travel. If you wanted to move continents, if you needed to get to another continent, you had to take a ship. It was the only way you could get across. So ships were far more common. They came by far more often, and most of them traveled along the exact same lines. In the same way that airplanes don't just go wherever the hell they want, they follow a path. So the lifeboats were intended to hold you basically until it could get you to another ship and then run back to get more people. They were more like rescue rafts as we see them now, rather than the actual rescue vessels that they were intended to be. So it's interesting to look back and also be like, well, they didn't have enough lifeboats. It's like they did for what they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. People didn't really consider lifeboats to be a secondary option to your ship. You were supposed to be able to just stand in them for like about 10 minutes as a water taxi. And then be done with it because you were supposed to be on another ship. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying reading some of like the the safety and the rescue plans uh, at this time, because right. written into them is, oh, you get into the thing and then a passing ship will pick you up. That seems like such a massive if. But like you were just pointing yes. out, you know, in these in these more heavily trafficked sea lanes, you could reasonably expect another ship to be there. Reasonably. But even as you said, there's still no guarantee you see that with buses now. People are late. You get lost. Stuff e- even in a confined place like Lake Michigan, we saw with like the SS Milwaukee, mm-hmm. you know, they found them, what, a week later, mm-hmm. frozen in the boats? Like like you said, they're water taxis. 
we talk about like the layers of survival and all the bottlenecks you have to get through talking mm-hmm. about like the Lusitania. And like, as these things start to list, it sort of takes most of the lifeboats away as an option. And that's one of them where we look at how before a certain time in history, it tends to just be the young athletic men who survive. And that's one of those things. If you can, if you can make this six foot jump from the deck to the lifeboat, you have a chance of getting in one, but for the rest of the people, that's probably not realistic. Chief Baker Charles Jockin from the Titanic in his testimony before one of the um, Senate hearings, he he says that he was trying to, um, you know, he was helping women and, you know, people across this increasing gap. But one woman, you know, I guess didn't take his help or didn't take his hand. And she just fell straight down and mm. presumably died. No one, you know, no one ever saw her again. Because as you pointed out, it, jumping six feet is not easy. I mean, anyone, right. if you've not done it in a while, I can't do it now. First of all, I'm not great at judging distance. And secondly, that's a skill. I don't have it. It's a young person's game. It is very much a young person's game. But not too young. It's a relatively young person's game. But you're very right about the survival bottleneck in that eventually things just begin to compound upon themselves where you're no longer worried about, you know, Titanic's a good example. The, the, a few seconds after it struck the iceberg, you know, it wasn't really sinking all that badly. So you get into a lifeboat easy, but then, oh, everyone's noticed that it's sinking. Oh, shit everyone's going to run to the deck and all of a sudden there's way more competition there's way more chaos way more people far fewer boats way bigger lists it's just like all right suddenly there are a lot more hurdles to contend with and not everyone just based on the odds is going to make all of them uh so although those lifeboats were ineffective uh there's a significant amount of bravery shown by the crew and locals on shore to help passengers escape the ship uh so back to the account of captain williams I got the passengers into the rigging and outside the rails and encouraged them to go forward where the ship was highest and less exposed to the water. The third officer, Mr. Brady and the quartermaster Owens and Speakman, having by this time established communication with the outlying rock, got four other lines to the rock, along which about 200 people passed. Between the rock and the shore was a passage 100 yards wide. A rope was successfully passed across this, by which means about 50 got to land, though many were drowned in the attempt. At 5 a.m., the first boat appeared from the island, but she was too small to be of any assistance. So there Williams writes about a 100-foot or a 100-yard gap. And I don't know if this is supposed to be a different gap than they're talking about later, because later the distance is is called 40 yards, which is like a a significant difference. so I don't know if he's writing about a different distance they're trying to get across. Uh, so reportedly, the quartermaster, John Speakman, is the one who got that rope fastened to the rock and with the help of Third Officer Brady, attached the subsequent lines as well to help those passengers cross the 40 yards to shore. Um, so regardless, you've got the crew taking action to get these passengers onto land. Third Officer Brady also alerted the residents of the island and some larger boats arrived around three hours after the Atlantic had run aground. Uh, All those who remained on the ship or stuck on the rocks were taken to shore and kind of distributed out among local homes where they could be given aid. Um, Williams gives the number of survivors at this point as 429. Not great odds. Yes, and if you remember, she had about 950 people on board. The rescue efforts were centered around the home of Michael Clancy, Uh, whose children were also instrumental in uh, the rescue and aid efforts. So from Bob Chalk, again, speaking about Michael Clancy's daughter, Sarah. 
Everyone who came ashore, those 400 or so people, went through her house at some point. It was so bad they had to bore holes in the floor to drain the water that was dripping off the people. First Officer J.W. Firth remained in the rigging for about six hours uh, to keep a female passenger from falling into the water until they could both be rescued. So he had basically tied her into the rigging uh, Mm -hmm. and promised to stay with her the whole time. And he did. And they both ended up surviving. Good for them. That's like our, like we always say, that's like our movie moment in this story, I feel like. (laughs) Uh, So getting into kind of the the aftermath and, and a little bit about how the wreck is sort of remembered in history. So after the sinking, Captain Williams spent several weeks in Halifax, during which time he wrote letters to White Star, and he gave several newspaper interviews. The conduct of Captain Williams in the management of his ship during the 12 or 14 hours preceding this disaster was so gravely at variance with what ought to have been the conduct of a man placed in his responsible position. That's harsh. That is. That's extremely harsh. There's supposed to be more between that because that makes it sound like Captain Williams is saying that about himself. And it's like, dude, take it easy on yourself. I was curious about yeah, that. Because I was yes. reading. I, I was thinking. No, there's, there's supposed to be. I was going to expand on that and I just never did. This is um, just written out self-flagellation at this point. <laughs> like, yeah, it sucks. A lot of people died, but come on. Have some this is like Alexander Hamilton just publishing his own affair. He's like, guess yeah, what I did? Yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> chill. I want the rap hip hop version of this story to be done. Go ahead. Do it. Here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that. I'm just going to introduce it as coming from the Canadian government inquiry. Okay. And then if you want to reread the quote, that'll probably be easier. Ultimately, uh, an investigation was held by the Canadian government, and it found uh, most of the blame being laid on Captain Williams himself. The conduct of Captain Williams in the management of his ship during the 12 or 14 hours preceding the disaster was so gravely at variance with what ought to have been the conduct of a man placed in his responsible position. Yeah, not high praise uh, from the uh, from the investigation here. Weird. They did start it out by being like, sorry about this. Uh, you know, they're sorry about that. Yeah, sorry. Terribly sorry to do this. I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the rap musical version of the <laughs> SS Atlantic disaster. I've been, I had my mic on mute and I can't stop giggling. I'm so sorry. We're on talking about tragedy. <laughs> but I think if anyone could make it happen, it would be Lin Manuel Miranda. I can just, he would he would whip something up for yeah, us. Yeah, he'd come out in a white star line uniform, just be like, I don't know, something like Once upon a time there was a ship called the Atlantic. Though I don't know much, I think I'm just gonna rap beach and every part of this disaster, so you'll know how. If we go on this adventure, so you'll know now and then it'll just keep going on as people come in and it's going to be a whole thing this is the second time on the podcast that we've had an ad hoc lin-manuel miranda song about the ship we're talking about (laughs) i heard about your metrics and needed to help boost them up so next time you have guests you have to tell them that's just letting you know two out of the four people last time made up raps on this show and we need you to beat those odds. <laughs> That's why our Edmund Fitzgerald episode is so popular, actually. Uh, yeah, I would have just sang the whole song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and let's see, where are we here? The usual accusations of incompetence and, of course, drunkenness are leveled at Captain Williams. There's no real evidence for that. It's just kind of the thing that people said about captains uh, I, who ran their ship into rocks. I assume everyone's drunk at this time. <laughs> That's another thing. This was pre-prohibition. Yeah. Yeah, baseline this, drunk here is like pretty high, probably. This is also the time of like that good medicine, 
where it's just like codeine and THC and everything. Everything you could possibly have in in your medicine that's now like a class one substance. Mm -hmm. Aside from the brandy and cocaine in his system, no, he was not drunk. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's also a thing that was speculated about Captain Smith of the Titanic was like, he was drunk. There's a lot of really interesting accusations that just kind of get stuck on people at the time Mm -hmm. and um that was kind of one of them is that if somebody's at fault clearly they're under the influence of substances or you know if men you know if men happen to survive whether they were crew Mm -hmm. um or passengers there was always a stigma attached to them no matter what it was it could have been like hey i was crewing this lifeboat it's Mm -hmm. like and so what if you were there's there's no acceptable reason to some people for there Mm -hmm. to have been a man on on a a boat at that time and so that's also why a lot of people who just like a lot of men that survived they would say things like i didn't climb into life but i was pulled from the water i was pulled from the water so many people pulled from the water man just too many of you i think that's like isn't that the whole thing with like lytoler and everything that follows him around for a long time after the fact no a bunch of other stuff follows lytoler around for (laughs) things after the fact part of which is that there's some some people accused him of committing war crimes, um, but if you look at the disaster, I'm not going to weigh in on that one because I don't know enough about it, but it's one of those things where apparently you can like see both sides where it's like, you were just doing what you told, it was war, and on the other side, it was like, why would you do that? So um, <laughs> Wait, on the Titanic? No, or? no, no, oh, okay. this is later. Sorry, sorry, sorry. This had nothing to do with the Titanic. This had <laughs> came later. In World War One. Yes, yes, like... yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, oh, Jesus, hold on. Let me Google this really quickly. Thing I've heard about Lytoller is like you know him being the one who's you know the women and children uh, only um, mm. saying like no one else is getting in these lifeboats even if there's room and so yeah all the any sort of dirt we have on Charles Lytoller I mean it's always interesting. So here's two things about that. Number one, the lifeboat thing. I did just look up the um, war crimes thing, so I will get to that table uh-huh. war. I promise. Um, <laughs> but. There was two officers that were in charge on the Titanic of, light, of loading the lifeboats. There was Lightoller who were talking about the second officer. And then there was Murdoch, who was on the bridge at the time. He was the first officer. And he was on the starboard side, right hand for anyone who doesn't know that yet. Your favorite also. If I, my if I favorite. Murdoch is my favorite um, officer. He's tangentially part of the reason I actually ended up studying English in college. But he was on the port, uh, right, oh, Jesus Christ, starboard side. Lightoller was on the port side and... Lightoller operated under the strict women and children only. Murdoch operated under women and children first. And it sounds like, well, that's just a matter of semantics. And it a thousand percent was, but it mattered a lot because it meant that when Murdoch was looking around for people, if he didn't see any women or children, he would just put men on the boats, which was allowed. So those men boarded completely fine. There was no one else around. No one was getting in. So it was like, well, may as well save somebody's life. Lightoller did not do that. That doesn't necessarily make him a bad person because that was the conduct at the time. However, some people do debate about him because he was an officer during the Royal Navy during World War I, and he rammed and sank a German U-boat. And the captain of that U-boat claimed that some of the survivors were, um, that they that Lightoller and his crew basically followed them and gunned them down, which was never really substantiated because it's, it's wartime and it's really hard because obviously people aren't going to listen to the, the quote unquote, the opposing side. So that is the controversy that does follow him around. And again, I'm like, I don't know enough about it. You know, I haven't actually like read into testimonies and it's also about like who's motivated to lie or not even lie, but just like who, people are motivated by their side. So it's, it's hard for me, at least personally to weigh in on that, but that's what that is about. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's an interesting tie. We talked about that some of the Lusitania episodes about how U-boat crews were viewed and how they viewed other ships. Because, like, you know, the U-boat crews weren't able to save anyone. So Mm -hmm. they kind of got that same no quarter in return. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I I did not know that about... uh about uh, Lightoller. So this is why we, we have to talk to Titanic people occasionally. He, re- <laughs> he redeemed himself at Dunkirk, though. He, he saved some people yep. there. Yep, he did. And that's the other thing is that, like, some most people are complicated. Some people are just not, but most people are complicated. And it's kind of like, I've never served in a war. I don't I don't know what that's like. I don't I don't know what decisions you might or may not have to make. And I especially didn't serve in a war back in the early 1900s when there were also just completely different like standards of battle protocol. Like I'm pretty sure now there's maybe I have no idea. Actually, I was going to speculate. It's like, nope, I don't know what I'm talking about. So we're just not even <laughs> going to go down there. I'm like, nope, 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 not, not going to drop bait in the water. Like when I was on your show and I, I said that Isidore Strauss was a slave owner, which is not true. And we corrected it on the show. We did. He was just an ardent supporter of the Confederacy. He was not technically a slave owner. You see, so. this is semantics that I am willing to debate and not like yes. women and children first versus only. I'm like, nah, yes. did, did, did we, is this just like you didn't do it because you didn't have the opportunity? I was too young to own slaves would be his excuse. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, there was a news clip that I think I saw on John Oliver's show where this guy was, um, this white guy was yelling at these um, black protesters about something like my family didn't own slaves, but then he immediately interrupted himself to before he redeemed himself. <laughs> he immediately was like, do you know how much a slave cost back then? He was like, Woo! so close and yet so far, bud. <laughs> you almost, you almost won. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We talked about the captain being drunk or not drunk, probably not drunk. That was a big thing in the Exxon Valdez episode is that's mm-hmm. the, wide ranging accusation is the captain of the Exxon Valdez was drunk and rammed the ship into Alaska and the captain wasn't even on the bridge right at, at the point. But, uh, but anyway, um, back to kind of the wrap up here for the Atlantic. So, uh, in terms of casualties of the roughly 950 people aboard the Atlantic on her last voyage, only an estimated, uh, 370 to 420 survived. Um, so death toll of around 550. I've seen estimates as low as 530, as high as like 570, uh, but somewhere in the mid 500s. So this was a, a a pretty unimaginable disaster at the time. More about the numbers here. So hardest hit among the passengers were single women, children, and married couples. They were birthed at the back of the ship at the at the stern. That's at least how White Star Line did all their ships. I don't know if Cunard was different, but White Star Line would keep married couples and families, single children in the stern quarters, and single men would be quartered in the bow. Interesting. Thinking about this, like, had I not done all the reading that I did, I would have thought that's probably safer. That's like the safer place to be, you know, if the ship runs into something. And in this case, as we'll see, no, it's not. Yeah. Some sources estimated as many as three children may have survived. But the the one whose name is recorded is 12-year-old John Hindley, uh, who is emigrating from England to New Jersey with his parents and older brother. And so even that, we see like the the like the one confirmed child survivor is a somewhat older child. You know, he's 12. This isn't like mm-hmm. an instant. I see 12-year-olds doing like tricks on razor scooters and hanging off of monkey bars. I mean, 12-year-olds can. You can do a lot, yeah. Play. They're pretty athletic, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Also, like a like an eighteen seventies twelve year old is probably like what like a twenty year old today. <laughs> yeah, he's got his own lighter and a pension. It's a tough yeah. breed. Um, <laughs> so those high casualties among women and children, you know, that's common in these older wrecks. And with the Atlantic, there's the additional factor that led to this result. So, like Alexia was just talking about, is the layout of the passenger accommodations has has a lot to do with this. Coupled with the way that the ship ran aground, those single male passengers. Uh, as we just said, they're housed in the bow portion uh, with the single women, the families uh, at the stern. So when the ship struck the rocks, the bow stays above the water. So it's kind of sticking up out of the water mm-hmm. and that leaves the stern dipping down into the water. So like in William's account, he talks about getting people forward to get them away from from the worst of the like the flooding. And so, yeah, the stern is kind of just stuck there um, in the water, leading to Again, like that's a pretty common distribution, but this is kind of especially so, that extra factor. Many of the dead were buried in one of two local cemeteries. There was a Protestant one in Terrence Bay and a Catholic one in Lower Prospects. Kind of a morbidly convenient setup here to have both of those so close by. Um, and I think that is that brings me to the end of the notes that I prepared for this. Getting into final thoughts, conclusions um, about the SS Atlantic. Yeah, I'm looking at the I'm on Google Google uh, Maps right now, kind of looking around where she went down. And there's actually an SS Atlantic Interpretation Center and their website is really cool. It's a lot of good pictures and stuff on here that looks super interesting. Um, I would like to check that out sometime. Uh, the other thing is I'm just glad this is the last major tragic maritime thing to happen in Halifax. Yeah, I mean, just so glad that this beautiful city could flourish and Get out from under that circle of shipwreck death. Yeah, nothing bad ever happened again. Mm-mm, Titanic hoomst. Even though it's like an integral part of the story, I I like always forget that the Halifax explosion is a maritime incident. Mm. Um, because That's there's, fair. Just, there's just so much more happening. Yeah, I feel um, like I, it's probably due to geography, I suppose. But like Halifax is uniquely positioned to just have a lot of maritime tragedy happen. There. This would be a very inappropriate april fool's episode but we could do we could do an episode on the halifax explosion but like only pay attention to the collision the ship aspect of it not talk about the rest i think people would be absolutely fine with that what Uh a tragedy that these two ships were lost on the same day that's for next year after we've after we've replenished our patrons a little bit just a schoons but yeah as far as this goes i mean it it's kind of one of those classic shipwreck stories, I feel like. And it's interesting that this happens in that transition point between the sail and the steam and that you see some of the same, you know, as far as the amount of people that are on board, you're getting into the realm of like the Lusitanias, the Titanics and things like that. Of In the past, a lot of these ships are very small. You're talking mm-hmm. 200 people or something like that. Yeah. Like, we're talking about the, the survival bottlenecks. How do you get a thousand people off of a sinking vessel? Like, how, I mean, how, what are the logistics behind that even? And I think the answer we're discovering is that many times they don't. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like I didn't mention this, but if my memory serves correctly, the Ismay that was at the helm mm-hmm. uh, or in command of this, I believe he was killed in the sinking. And I think he was one of the only bridge officers who was. It is always tragic to learn that people were lost. Like, it's not like anyone is just like, good, I hope they're gone. It's like, mm-hmm. no, that's, that sucks. Especially, you know, a horrific way to go. And there was... There was an Ismay on the Titanic also, correct? 
Yes, there was J. Bruce Ismay. I believe that he was the nephew of this one. Okay. And yeah, he ended up being the head of the White Star Line and the president of the International Mercantile Marine for many, many years of following in his relative's footsteps. And it was under his guidance that the Olympic class was built and launched and, and everything. He was on the Titanic when it sank. He did survive by getting onto a lifeboat, and a lot of people are extremely mad at him about that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, this was the beginning of the Ismay's name in the White Star Line and its operations. I guess, Alexia, do you just want to plug your show officially here? Um, yeah, why not? It's one of my favorite things to do. If you <laughs> enjoyed my nonsense or want to learn a little bit more about Titanic and a lot more about everything else, you can check out my show. It's called Titanic Talk Line. It's on every platform and every week i have a new person on like tanner who comes and talks to me about their story with titanic and literally basically anything else that we can consider to talk about we have a good time we learn some stuff and we exchange some stories so come check it out it's a fun time you'll like it i hope yeah titanic talk line is a really fun show i like the variety of guests that you're able to get on there you know whether it's writers or youtubers or podcasters or whoever uh, or just people who happen to be interested in the titanic uh, yep. uh relatives of of people involved with the titanic i think within the past month or so my episode with cliff ismay who is the i believe it is great grandson of Jay Bruce Ismay, who I was just talking about, was on my show. And that's a fun episode to listen to. You learn a little bit about, uh, more about the Ismay life. That's Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really cool. I'll have to get you on the show, um, Taylor. That's Yeah, point. definitely. Definitely. That would Taylor. be a fun time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm exclusively story. calling you that from now on. <laughs> I love Taylor. it. <laughs> Taylor on Beyond the Breakouts. <laughs> With that, uh, we'll wrap up here and sign off. Um, and we will be back next week and we don't have a guest scheduled but you know things happen sometimes maybe (laughs) late april fools i think it'll be just me and taylor next week and i think we'll be starting into one of our big multi-part episodes as well so you have that to look forward to so with that uh we'll sign up here take care we will talk to you next week